We are working our way through Acts and have come to chapter 25 this morning. We're going to jump into that here in just a moment, but I need to review a little bit as we have taken several weeks here. We've gone through a number of chapters, but this part of Acts, as I have mentioned, there are, there are parts of Acts that speed up, that, that two years pass by in a single verse. We saw that last week. And then we have several chapters that, that move very, very slowly. And so we've come to this, this point here in Acts where we, we're kind of seeing the same thing happen over and over. We're seeing the same story kind of in bits and pieces again and again. And it kind of heads back, if you remember, if you look back, uh, Paul has, has gathered, he's made his missionary journeys, he's gone, he's gone out, planted churches, and he has brought some Gentiles back with him and headed to Jerusalem. He had, he had, uh, had done lots of things, but one of the things that he had done was collected an offering in the Gentile churches that he was bringing back to Jerusalem to give to the, to the early Jewish believers, part of the early church, he was bringing an offering back to them, hoping f- to, to give some unity to the church, hoping for that, that this offering that was, that was collected by Gentiles and brought to those early believing Jews, that that might bond those churches together, because there still was division within the early church between Jews and Gentiles. And so he was hoping that he might bond them together with this offering. He had some other things to do too, but he wanted to, to do that, to bring that to Jerusalem. And so he brings that report. They celebrate with, with Paul about all the things that God is doing. And then, and then they kind of drop the shoe and they say, what you've done, Paul, has been great, but we have some issues. There's some issues that these Jewish believers have with you that... that need to be addressed. And so they ask him to go to the temple and to be purified and to sponsor some other men that are also in the process of, of finishing out a Nazarite vow. And so Paul agrees. He, he, more than anything else, he wants to bring unity to the church. And so even though we've talked several times about how he doesn't see the law as having, having, having authority over him in the same way as it did in the Old Testament times, he agrees, he goes, he goes to purify in the temple. And while he's there, some other traditional Jews from Asia, probably from, from Ephesus where he had been earlier, they see Paul and they, they begin to start a riot. They, they, in fact, they, they grab Paul and they begin to beat him and they, they attempt to kill him right there on the Temple Mount because they believe that he is, he is um, unclean that, and that he's bringing Gentiles into the Temple area. And so they begin to beat him. The Roman soldiers see what's happening. They rush to the Temple Mount. They grab Paul to rescue him because he's about to be beaten and killed. And so they grab him. They, they pull him away. They physically restrain him from the people, lift him up so that people can't get a hold of him. And just before they haul him into the barracks, he stops them because Paul wants to explain himself. He wants to try to make it okay. He wants to try to convince the people that are there what's happening and that, and that he's trying to follow the law and that he wants to unite the church together. And so, so he stops and he gives his testimony on the steps of the barracks. And, and as he begins to share, he, he shares his testimony again. We, we hear it, we read it again. And then he says, and Jesus has called me to bring, to, to, to bring the light to the Gentiles. And just by saying those words, 
words, that phrase, the uproar begins again, and the soldiers grab Paul and they physically drag him into the barracks. They still don't, the Roman soldiers still don't know what is going on. We don't know why all of these people, why there's this riot around this man, why all of these Jews want to kill Paul. And so the, the lead soldier decides he's going to flog Paul. He's going to beat the information that he wants out of Paul so that he can understand what is happening because he can't figure out why all these people have such an issue with Paul. And so just as they, they strap him down, just as they're getting ready to beat him, Paul says, is this what you're supposed to do to a Roman citizen? And his Roman citizenship in that moment saves him from the beating. It also begins to turn what happens in, in these stories, that now, as a Roman citizen, he has a different set of protections. He has a different set of laws that have to govern how they treat Paul. And so these soldiers take him quickly off of the flogging station, and they, they still don't have any idea what's going on. They, they, they don't understand why all these people want to kill Paul. And so the, the lead soldier, Lysias, he commands the Sanhedrin or the Jewish council, the lead Jewish council to gather so that there can be a trial there in the lead Jewish council with the Sanhedrin so that, so that Paul can go on trial with them. And Lysias, the, the lead Roman soldier, can have an idea of what's going on, what's happening in the midst of that. And so they go to the Sanhedrin and when they get there, Paul, Paul begins his defense, but he also he also begins to talk about the idea of a resurrection, that, that there is a hope of resurrection for all believers, and, and even, even Jewish, traditional Jewish believers would have a hope of resurrection, that that was from the Old Testament. And, and he knew that that idea of the resurrection was going to lead to issues within the Sanhedrin because there was two groups. There were Pharisees. They were the smaller of the two groups. They believed in the hope of resurrection, not even setting aside whether or not Jesus was resurrected. That's a whole different, a whole different scenario. Just the idea of resurrection, the possibility of resurrection, the Pharisees would believe in, but the Sadducees did not. And so the Sadducees, who were the rulers of the Sanhedrin, the high priest and several of the others, the majority, did not believe in resurrection. So this idea of, of there even possibly being an idea of resurrection begins to start a riot within the trial that's happening in the Sanhedrin, even between those members of the Sanhedrin. And the riot begins, begins to be so big and so loud and so raucous that Lysias, the Roman soldier, grabs Paul again and hauls him out of this trial of the Sanhedrin again to protect Paul. And so, so he is now again in Roman authority. He's, he's, he's confined in the Roman jail, in the Roman prison, because they continued to rescue him, trying to save his life. Lysias, even in the midst of all of this, still doesn't have a great handle on, on what's happening with Paul. He doesn't, he, he, he has started to, to assume, he started to surmise that there is an internal Jewish issue that Paul has with the other Jews, and it's not, it's not an issue with the Roman authorities, it's not something that the Roman authorities even need to deal with, but Lysias knows that there cannot be an uprising there in Jerusalem and in the Judean area. And so, 
He has to figure out what to do with Paul. In the midst of all of this, Paul, while he continues to find rescue, he found rescue in his Roman citizenship, he finds rescue in this, in this battle that happens in the Sanhedrin and the Roman authorities drag him out and protect him. He's found rescue in the midst of that, but he finds his full rescue, he finds his full safety in a moment in one night in prison when Jesus himself comes to Paul and says, what you have done here in Jerusalem, you have, you have done well. You've spoken of me. You have shared of me here in Jerusalem. And your time in Jerusalem is over, Jesus says. And now you're going to go to Rome and you're going to speak, to, you're going to speak of me there in Rome. And so Paul has this confidence. Paul has this, this knowledge that, that Jesus has called him to go to Rome, that he is to take courage. And so Paul now has this uh, invincibility is really the best way to describe it. He knows that, that while he's there in Jerusalem, that even though they, they, these riots continue to come, even though these people continue to try to kill him, he isn't going to die because Jesus has made a promise that he is going to head to Rome and share in Rome. And so he has a, he has a, a, a courage about him. But it's not peaceful after that. It's not smooth sailing after that. In fact, if you remember, if we, I think it was back in chapter 23 is where we see that promise that comes from Jesus. And then it says, that night, Jesus makes this promise. There's, if you have a red letter Bible, you see that Jesus himself is speaking to Paul there. And then when it's morning, it says, the very next day after Jesus has made this promise to Paul, the very next day, 40 Jews get together and they're going to assassinate Paul. They say, we are not going to eat or drink anything until we assassinate Paul. And so they try to put this plan together to have Paul brought back from the barracks, brought back from the Roman prison, brought back through town to come to another trial of the Sanhedrin. And when that happens, these 40 men are going to give their lives because they would have to, they, there's no way they could, could get in between all of these Roman soldiers that are guarding Paul and, and all of them survive. But they're going to sacrifice themselves so that Paul is assassinated. But Paul's nephew hears of the plan, comes and tells Paul about it. Paul immediately tells his nephew to go and to tell the guards about it. They do. And, and, and the Lysias hears this plan and decides that he is, not, he is not going to let Paul be assassinated by these 40 men who have made this plan. And so Lysias now has a new plan. He's not going to continue to keep... Paul in Jerusalem, but instead he's going to send him off back down the mountain, down to Caesarea, where the, the Roman headquarters is in this area. And so he gathers the soldiers together. He gathers, he gathers 200 infantrymen, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen, 470 soldiers he puts together. He puts Paul on the back of a horse in the middle of the night, and he, and he has him rushed out of Jerusalem and on to Caesarea. When he gets to Caesarea, the governor, the Roman governor is there, the man that's in charge of this area at this time. His name is Felix, and he uh, hears, he hears Paul's uh, defense. The high priest from Jerusalem comes. He brings uh, a, a lawyer with him, Tertullus, and they have a trial. That's what we talked about last week. 
They have a trial before Felix, and Tertullus gives his gives uh, his his charges against Paul. He says this man is a plague. He starts riots. He's a ringleader in the sect of the Nazarene, and he's trying to profane and defile the temple. And Paul says, Paul says that's not true. I'm not trying to profane the temple. In fact, I'm trying to obey all of the rules and the laws of the temple. In fact, better even than some of these men, he says. I'm not a ringleader in the sect of the Nazarene, but I am a follower of the way. And I'm not a riot upriser starter. In fact, I was only there for a few days. I couldn't cause an uprising in just those few days. And he makes his defense against Felix. Over and over in the midst of this, we'll see it again today, but over and over in the midst of this, these authorities, these judges, these governors, when they hear Paul's defense, when they hear the argument, they know, they know that Paul is innocent. They can see it. They, they understand the charges. They know that there's nothing that should, should keep Paul in jail. In fact, that's one of the quotes that we'll actually read today in our chapters today. They see it. Felix knew. Felix knew that there was no charge that would hold up and stick against Paul. And yet he also knew that the Jews would stop at nothing to make sure that Paul was dead. Paul's mere presence, his mere survival, his mere existence here in this area was going to make the Jews crazy with passion. And so he knew that he couldn't let Paul go, and yet he couldn't let Paul be killed because he was a Roman citizen. And so what Felix does is Felix decides he's not going to make any decision. He puts it off. He puts Paul back in jail and he sends, he sends the Jewish authorities away and says, we will decide this later. We'll have Lysias come, we'll, we'll get more testimony, and we'll decide it later. And it's in the midst of that, Felix and his wife Drusilla, they come, they they. they pull Paul out of prison, and they begin to have Paul share with them and, and question Paul. And Paul, again, as you can imagine, is faithful to the gospel. He begins to talk about, he begins to talk about uh, the, the second coming. He begins to talk about self-control and righteousness, it says. And in the midst of that, as he begins to share the gospel, Felix trembles. Felix becomes alarmed, it says, and so Felix, while he still has Paul in jail and while he still brings him out many times hoping that he might receive a bribe from Paul and from his followers, Felix doesn't want to respond to the gospel. In the midst of all of that, last week we talked about the sovereignty of God, that God is sovereign in all that he does. God promises and God accomplishes his promises. He's made a promise to Paul that Paul is going to go to Rome and he's going to share before the, the authorities in Rome. That promise has been made to Paul and so Paul waits upon God to complete that promise. He waits upon God, waits on the sovereignty of God to see that promise come true. God's sovereignty knows no bounds. He promises things and he accomplishes them. He uses, he uses nephews, he uses soldiers, he uses leaders. He uses decisions and lack of decisions for his sovereignty, for his sovereignty to come to fruition. And so Paul, who originally, if you remember, was arrested or was, was collected, not arrested, he was collected by the guards to save his life because he was being killed on the Temple Mount, Paul was collected up, rescued 
by the guards. And now, two years later, Paul is still imprisoned. And Felix, the governor, decides that he is not going to let Paul out. Even though he knows that Paul is innocent, he has decided he's not going to let Paul out as a favor to the Jews, it tells us. And so, Felix is recalled by the emperor, by Nero himself in Rome. Felix is recalled because of his ruthlessness. And a new governor is sent. That's where we come to here in chapter 25. So we're going to read together today chapters 25 and 26 here in Acts. It'll be on the screen. You can also use your own Bible. I'd encourage you to follow along today. We're going to read a large chunk of Scripture. If you have a pew Bible this morning, it's page 934. We're going to begin chapter 25, verse 1. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. The chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept in Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he had stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. The next day he took a seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood with him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then... I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die. I do not seek to escape death. But there is nothing to their charges against me. No one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. And Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now some days had passed. Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid out Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat at the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case as to such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall and the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. 
Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not live any longer. But I found that he has done nothing deserving death, and he himself appealed to the emperor. I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have done nothing definite to write my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am going to make my defense today against all of the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12, 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem, and not only locked up many of the saints in prison, but receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I punished them often in all synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw a way, on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun. It shone around me, those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Rise, stand to your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying, both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ would suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. 
For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. I think it's good for us to be reminded as we read this who the cast of characters are and what their place is. Paul, we know. Paul's our main character. Paul has been put in jail for his own protection. There's no charges against him that that have any validity to them at least. And so Paul is in jail. He's been in jail for two years now. And he's being kept in jail. We've heard now twice, both with Felix and with Festus, he's being kept in jail as a favor to the Jews. The governor now is Portius Festus. He was the one that replaced Felix when Felix was recalled back to Rome. Portius Festus has now come, and he is the Roman authority over this area. Roman, there's, there's Roman rule over this portion of the world, and in this area, there's a Roman governor who is the, who is the one that is sent from Rome. He has the official authority over the area. But this area of the world, this Judean area of the world, is not Roman, it's Jewish. Much of it, at least, is Jewish. And so, while there is a Roman authority, he's the governor, it's Portius Festus, there's also another man who has been given authority over the Jews, that would be King Herod Agrippa II. Now you know the name of Herod, the King Herod. There was a Herod the Great, that would be this man who we're talking about today. It would have been his grandfather. Herod the Great would have been the Jewish king when Jesus was born. Herod the Great was the one who had, who when, when hearing that there was a, a king of the Jews, he was the one that had all of the babies, all of the boys that were two years old or younger massacred because he wanted to make sure that there was no one that would come and try to take his throne. That was what led Joseph and Mary and Jesus off to Egypt in that story. That was Herod the Great. Herod had a son, uh, and his son was, was uh, Antipas, and he was the second Herod that we hear about in the Gospels. Herod Antipas was the one, was Herod the Great's son. He was the one that oversaw Jesus' trial. He, again, had, had authority over Jewish matters, but not, he didn't have ultimate authority as the Romans would have, or Pilate, who was the Roman governor at the time of Jesus' death. But Herod Antipas was the one who oversaw Jesus' death. After Herod Antipas died, Herod Agrippa, another son of Herod the Great, but Herod Agrippa I, a brother of Herod Antipas, 
uh, became the king of the Jews, became the, the Herod who was in charge. We've already heard, we've read about Herod Agrippa I. He was back in Acts chapter 12. Was, uh, James, the leader of the church, was beheaded by Herod, uh, Herod Agrippa I. And then Herod Agrippa came out and people began to say, you look so magnificent, you must be a god. And he didn't correct them. And God had him eaten by worms, if you remember that from Acts chapter 12. That was Herod Agrippa I. His son, Herod Agrippa II, is the man that we find here in chapters 25 and 26 of the book of Acts. When, when Herod Agrippa I was eaten by worms. Herod Agrippa II was still a young man. In fact, he was back in Rome in school. And so he did not immediately take charge of this area, but was later sent from Rome and given some authority over some neighboring areas around Jerusalem and north of Jerusalem and north of Judea. But he comes as the Jewish authority. So he does have a little bit of authority over the, the Jewish church. He is able to pick when, when, uh, when the high priest needs, uh, the high priest, is, Ananias, is going to be killed in just a little bit. Agrippa will be the man who chooses the new high priest over the church. And so he has some church authority, but he does not have any legal Roman authority. Portius Festus, though, oh, and I should mention uh, Bernice, Bernice is Agrippa II's sister. So she uh, has a, a convoluted history too, we're not going to spend lots of time on that, but she was married to her uncle, Agrippa I's brother, uh, he passed away, so now she comes and she lives with her, with her brother, Agrippa II, and they have a, a convoluted relationship. So... Felix is called back to Rome. Festus, the governor, is the new governor that's been placed here. And he jumps out right away. He's not, he's not patient. He's not a procrastinator like Felix was. Uh, Festus decides right away he's going to be in this Jewish area. He's the Roman authority in the Jewish area. And so he heads directly, as soon as he gets there, the next day, he heads directly to Jerusalem to meet with the leaders of the church. He wants to, he, politically, he wants to make sure that the Jewish leaders are on his side. And so he goes immediately to Jerusalem as a political move so that he can gain favor with one of the major people groups that are in, the air, in his area uh, that he rules over. So when he gets there, he begins to visit with the Jewish leaders, and what's on their mind? Paul. For two years, it's been rubbing them wrong that Felix has just let Paul sit in jail. And they're, they're burned up by it. And so when Portius Festus gets to Jerusalem, the first thing they say to him is, we want Paul. We want him to be brought to Jerusalem because, while, while we read last week that there were 40 assassins who were not going to eat or drink until Paul had been killed, we can assume that two years later they probably had had something to eat or drink. But they're still out there. And they still want Paul to be killed. And there's still these men that are willing to give their lives to make sure that happens. And so, they want him to be moved. They, they, they request that Festus will move Paul back to Jerusalem so that they can kill him in route on the way. Festus, 
Festus doesn't want to do that. I think he might maybe seize through that a little bit, or maybe he just doesn't want to, to, to go to Caesarea and come. We don't know for sure, except that Festus says, let's just have the tribunal. Let's, let's, let's have it out. Let's figure out what's going on, but let's do it in Caesarea. Why don't you come with me back to Caesarea? We'll bring Paul out of prison, and we'll have the trial there. And so they, they do that. They head back to Caesarea. They have a trial, and, and, it's, and it's pretty quickly that Festus realizes this is not an issue for the Roman authorities. This is a Jewish issue. But again, if Festus knows if he were to let Paul out of prison without any kind of charge, the Jews would cause an uproar and there would be this, this riot, there would be an uproar and, and Festus ultimately would pay the price for that if he could not keep the people in his area under control. And so Festus decides that he also is going to keep Paul in jail and he's going to do it as a favor to the Jews. In the midst of that, though, he asks Paul. He asks Paul, would you like to just have this trial? Would you like to just go back to Jerusalem? Because this is an internal matter just in the church and and it really could be handled back in Jerusalem, do you want to just go back to Jerusalem and have it settled there? Festus kind of wants to get it off of his plate. But Paul realizes that in the midst of that, Paul knows, Paul knows that he would never even arrive in Jerusalem, that these men want to assassinate him, that there are men who want to kill him. And so Paul knows that that's that's not an option for him. And so he realizes that Festus isn't going to to have the same patient plan that Felix did, and that if Festus is willing to capitulate even just a little bit on, on moving the trial to Jerusalem, that, that there's probably going to be a moment, maybe in the near future, that Festus is going to give Paul over to the Jews. And so Paul decides in this moment, he has one more card to play, and so he decides he's going to appeal directly to Caesar. He's going to appeal directly to the emperor. Roman citizens had that option. They were able to appeal at any moment. They could, they could appeal in the midst of, of any trial, of any, of, of any questioning that they had. They could appeal directly to the emperor. They, could, they, they wouldn't necessarily always get an audience with the emperor. In fact, we see here that Festus has to, to meet with his council in order to make sure that that's okay. You, you, you couldn't automatically jump all the way to the top of the, of the chain. But... If your case showed the, showed, showed the promise or showed the need to be seen by the emperor, you could appeal directly to the emperor. And so that's what Paul does here. He says, I want to see Caesar. I appeal to Caesar. Festus meets with his council. They decide, yes, this is a good case and a good way for us to get it off of our plate and out of our hands. And so they're going to send him to Rome. Festus decides, to Caesar you have appealed, and to Caesar you will go. This fulfills, or begins to fulfill, the promise that we saw in Acts 23, where Jesus comes to Paul and says, you're going to speak about me in Rome. It also, though, there's also two other promises that we see here that, that are fulfilled too. We, we saw it first in Acts chapter 9. I, have, I, I think it's going to be on the screen as well. In Acts chapter 9, when, when Paul is met on the road by Jesus, he also is told this. He's told that he is a chosen instrument to carry his name before the Gentiles, to the kings, and to the children of Israel. That Paul is going to 
to share. In fact, we're, we read, we're going to look in just a second. He shares even with the kings, and he's going to go and head to Rome to share about the children of Israel there. And there's a promise. Jesus gives a promise well before Paul is even converted, but Jesus gives a promise in Matthew chapter 10. It's very much the same. And it says, Jesus says this, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Be fair of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts, and they will flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Jesus himself made this promise to the disciples and to the early believers. You are going to go before emperors and kings. And so, before before the boat sets sail for Paul to go, King Agrippa and his sister Bernice show up here in Caesarea. Again, it's a political move. The king of the Jews wants to make sure that he meets the new governor so that they can have a right relations together and that they can politically can get together. And so King Agrippa comes, he brings his sister Bernice, and they begin to visit with Festus. In the midst of that, Festus says, you know what, I have this guy who's in jail. I don't know what to do with him. He's appealed to Caesar, so I'm going to send him. But, but maybe you, because it's an internal Jewish squabble, maybe you can help me understand it better. And Agrippa says, I'd like to hear about it. So, the next day, you read about it in chapter 26. Sorry, this is actually in chapter 25. The next day, they decide they're going to have a gathering with Paul. So Agrippa and Bernice and Festus put on their best clothes. And it says, with all kinds of pomp and circumstance, they have a gathering to hear about Paul's defense. Picture this gathering. All of the important people are coming. The important businessmen are sitting there so that they can hear. There's, there's probably trumpets and horns. There's probably announcements of who is here. And as they sit, all of it happens. It's a huge undertaking. And then they drag out Paul from prison and leave him in his chains. And he stands in front of these magnificent king and sister of the king, Governor Festus, appointed by the emperor in Rome. A high and magnificent, formal, important ceremony. And Paul, in his chains, is said, here, give us your defense. And Paul jumps right in. We've heard much of this that Paul shares over and over. He establishes himself as a Jew. He says, I was, I was as good as you can be. I was a Pharisee. I have, I have the heritage of the Jews. He identifies that the resurrection is really the issue. The Jews believe in it. I don't know why anyone would not think that God can raise the dead, he says. He reminds he reminds everyone who's there of his previous zealousness of, of how he went and he tried to stamp out, wow, he tried to stamp out the early believers. And then he replaced his conversion story. I was headed down the road to Damascus. But he doesn't focus on what happens to him. He focuses on the words of Jesus. In fact, look there in, in chapter 26. He says, he says, this is what Jesus said, Paul says. 
The Lord said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Rise, stand on your feet. I've appeared to you for this purpose. And then he goes down and he says, he says in, in verse 18, I'm sending you to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light, that they may turn from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of their sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. He spells it out in this moment. That Jesus opens eyes, that Jesus turns us from dark to light, that Jesus moves us from Satan to God, that Jesus forgives our sin, that Jesus gives us a place with other believers, and he does it all by having faith in him. Paul spells it out. He continues. He continues right after that. And you can, you can almost hear it as you read it. He just continues to get more and more excited. And he says, in verse 21, he says, For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple. They tried to kill me. And this day I have the help that comes from God. And so I stand here. I testify before small and great. I say nothing but what the prophets and Moses would come to pass, that Jesus Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim the light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And Paul gets so excited that Festus stops him and says, Paul, you're crazy. Your great learning has driven you to nuts. What you're saying doesn't make any sense. And Paul doesn't even stop. Paul directly goes to Agrippa and he says, Agrippa knows that it makes sense. Agrippa knows the prophets. He believes in the prophets. I know that he does. And then he doesn't just rest there, but he actually puts it right to King Agrippa. Do you believe in this? And gives him a moment to respond. And Agrippa says, do you think that in such a short time you could convince me to be a Christian? Paul says, short or long, my prayer for you, I would, he says, my prayer for you, I would hope to God, he says, is that you might know the freedom that I have in Christ. See the picture? The king, his sister, the Roman governor, sitting on thrones, probably, surrounded by pomp and circumstance, decked out in their finest robes and uniforms. They have all the power. And Paul says, with his chains on him in that moment, says, I wish that you would have the freedom that I have. I wish, I wish that you would know that to die is gain and that the chains and the imprisonment that I have are far greater than the freedom that you think you have. I pray that you would know the freedom that I have in Christ, he says. It's in that moment the king can't handle it any longer and stands up and says, this, this is over. They go back to the back room and, 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 and he says, there's nothing. This man could be set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, but he has. And so to Caesar, he will go. Why does Paul tell us, or why does Luke tell us this story? 
We've heard it now three times in a row, chapter after chapter after chapter. What's the application in the midst of this? I think there's probably a a lot of applications that we can make. I think Luke tells us the story so that we can can see Paul's example first, so that we can can, can know what, what we're called to do in those moments. You saw on the screen as you came into the sanctuary this morning the verse from 1 Peter where it says, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. I think Luke tells us this story so that we might see Paul's example of courage and faith and and freedom so that we might might see as he shares his testimony how he's respectful in the ways that he does it, but he's Jesus-centric and how he gives opportunity to reply to the gospel. We might also see that that he's hope-filled, that he's excited. The word that that Festus uses when he stops Paul, when he says you're crazy, is is the idea of of mania would be the, the Greek root. That you're just going crazy as you talk about this. I think we see all of that. But I think the other reason that Luke might remind us of this story over and over again and point us back to the fact that Paul continues to be imprisoned for two years here is that Luke doesn't want us, Paul doesn't want us to have a focus just on the safe and happy ending. Paul didn't go to Jerusalem to be arrested on the sixth day that he was there. Paul went to Jerusalem so that he could have unity in the church. And that's not what he's found so far. Paul was hoping to to, to come to Jerusalem and build unity in the church with the offering and then to leave, to go and to build more churches. And yet that's not. It's not the plan that God had for him. He isn't building more churches. He isn't leading more Gentiles. He's not even going to have a safe trip to Rome in the next chapter. There's not a lot of happy endings for Paul in the midst of this. Jesus has made a promise. He's going to get to Rome. But it's not a joy-filled ride in the midst of it. It's not easy. It's not a happy ending. And yet, and yet when Paul gets to Rome, through the midst of a shipwreck, through the midst of many hardships, when he gets to Rome, before he's killed in Rome, He writes a letter to the Philippians. And in that letter, Paul has more joy than he has in any of his other writings. Paul says, to live is Christ. To die is gain. Paul continues to point us over and over to the freedom that he has even in the midst of chains. I think Luke wants to remind us of that. I think he wants to remind us it's not always a happy ending, and yet God is sovereign in the midst of it all. Worship team is going to come and lead us. We're going to sing together this morning about our hope that rests only in Christ. Paul saw it. He shared it. He shouted it. Shouted it to the governor and to the king.
He said, this is our only hope. I wish, he says. I pray to God, I would to God, that you would know the freedom, that you would know what I have, even in the midst of my chains. So stand with me this morning as we worship together. I once was lost in darkest night Yet thought I knew the way The sin that promised joy and life Had led me to the grave I had no hope that you would own A rabble to your will And it Love me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross, and I beheld. God's love displayed, you suffered in my place, bore the wrath reserved for me, now all I know is grace, hallelujah. So all might see the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. Oh, Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose, and let my song forever be my only his letter to the Romans by saying this, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel, to the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that has been kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith 
To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for coming this morning.